I hear that you're real good at what you do. Yeah, that's correct. Well, that's good. Because normally if a stranger walked into my station talking this kind of crap, you'd be looking for his teeth two blocks up on Queer Street. And welcome to a damn fine podcast and hot. Well, I don't know about hot. Uh, this is the podcast that revisits, reanalyzes, re-enjoys the television show Twin Peaks. I'm Tom Merritt. With me, Mr. Ron Richards. How are you? I'm fine, Tom. How you doing? I am damn fine. I'm, I'm excited because this is a big one. So. This is episode three of Damn Fine Podcast. And it's also the third episode of Twin Peaks we'll be discussing, but only episode two... <laughs> Because the pilot doesn't have episode one, and it has a horrible name, but then that's not actually the official name. It's a name given later, as we discussed last episode. Yeah, it's, it's, it's it, of course, Twin Peaks would not make this easy for us in any capacity. Um, no. So this is going to be, I think this is going to be an ongoing joke as we, our episode numbers will be one behind the show episode numbers. <sighs> but yeah. So the, I mean, uh, <laughs> the, the assigned name given to this show later, this episode later, Zen or the skill to catch a killer. Which is funny because as we talked about last episode, the, these these episode names were given when the show ran in Germany uh, years after its release here. And this really feels like someone in Germany making up bad names. <laughs> like, like, like already, the third episode they have to name, they ran out of ideas. I mean, like, the, I mean, you know, for episode one, last episode, Traces to Nowhere, that's a nice, that's a, that's a nice name, right? But Zen or the skill to catch a killer, like picking up on the Zen and the art of motorcycle repair or whatever that And then giving was. up yeah. on it halfway through yeah, naming it. Exactly. It's like someone who thought they were way more clever than they actually were. Um, Zen sad. and the art. No, not art. Skill? Skill? No. Art. Skill is like an art. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. What's the what's the background on this episode before we dive into our observations? So yeah. So this is uh, as you mentioned. This is the technically the third episode. Uh, third uh, show aired. Uh, the second episode that aired on its uh, first time slot of Thursday nights on April nineteenth, nineteen ninety. When it came out, twelve point one million households watched it, or twenty one percent of the viewing audience, which continued its dip from the initial pilot airing. And of course, you know that's going to happen. A lot of people watch it, and then it drops off. But I'm really going to be curious to see what the ratings for this looked like after this episode because this episode becomes pretty pivotal in terms of dividing the audience um, yeah and yeah. and for those of us who like the show like i do we look at this episode and feel like it's a cornucopia right yeah. of all all the things that we love beginning and this this is really the the episode that that separates the 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 dedicated from the casual because like, and for me, it's like when somebody says that they're into Twin Peaks, I like, okay, watch the first three, watch the pilot, and watch the first two episodes, and see how you feel. Because people either go running after this episode or immediately to the next episode, and that's mainly because this episode shows the return of David Lynch uh, directing. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, he, him, and Mark Frost wrote the episode again. Um, but last episode was directed by Dwayne Dunham. We talked about it was Lynch's editor and all that sort of stuff, and the stylistic. Like every aspect of this episode is so different from the previous episode. 
Yeah, I mean, right down to, and, and this is straight out of the uh, IMDb plot summary, yeah. Dale demonstrates odd deductive techniques for the sheriff's department, <laughs> which for a lot of people, and we'll get into this when we go through the observations, for a lot of people, this is a huge departure from what they thought Agent Cooper was, and they hate it, yep. or for, I think, both of us here, an amazing like left turn that just made the character even more interesting. Yeah, exactly. And and what I, I think is really fascinating Fascinating is that so you know David Lynch's direction of the pilot movie was unique and very Lynchian, but it wasn't weird. And then last episode was really relatively normal. It was you know like there was some quirky stuff and there was some things like that, and you got a sense that things are kind of odd or whatever. But this episode, Lynch comes back to direct, and they just turn the weird up to eleven. And like, and I remember when this came out. I mean, this is the episode that got parodied, parodied by Saturday Night Live, by The Simpsons. Like, this this episode has such a cultural resonance when you think of Twin Peaks, and we're gonna get to that, of course. And people who watch the show know what we're alluding to, but those who are in a new adventure might, you know, you'll find out. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, like this this really just it it went from being kind of quirky to downright weird and kind of and really challenging and disturbing by the end. Yeah, and. and- in, in some ways, uh, where other episodes may be more quotable, yep. there's, a, there's a couple quotes from this, but this doesn't have the memorable lines. This has the memorable visuals. Exactly. This yeah, has the, the memorable characterizations. Yeah, yeah I, that's, uh, and that, that's, uh, that, that, I mean, you totally nailed it right there. Because when, when you close your eyes, when I close my eyes and think of Twin Peaks, it's a lot of the shots and scenes from this episode um, that are memorable. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that till rewatching just how many are packed in. I always yeah. forget that. Yeah, and and it's funny because th- this episode actually got a lot of complaints. Uh, I was doing some research and and people called into the network and complained. And critics at the time wrote about it because of the overt sexuality and just the some of the disturbing imagery. And so like this is really the one where and and I'm try- I keep trying to remember back. What twenty six years ago? No, more. Yeah, how long is it? I can't do math. Yeah, twenty six years ago. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it was after this episode, I remember going, well, what the fuck is this, right? And like, and that, and even pulling me more into it and wanting to see what happens. And, and it's funny because it's like, I feel like this is the episode that really paved the way for Lost and The Sopranos and mm. Oz and shows like that to really take um, surreal turns at points in their run as opposed to playing it straight. Just the idea of showing a house of ill repute on yeah. primetime television as as admittedly as they did. You know, there wasn't a wink and a smile like, you all know what this really is, but we're not going to say. They're, they're, no, we're, we're going to be pretty, like, upfront. Like, you are in a whorehouse right yeah. now. And it's called One-Eyed Jacks. <laughs> well, yeah, well, so let's let's dive in. Oh, and so before we dive into the to what happens in the episode, uh, we're, we're going to make a little slight deviation on how we've been talking about the episodes up to this point in the past two episodes. Since there's so much going on in this show, as opposed to, I, you know, I hate recap, like, I hate websites that just recap TV shows and things like that. And and, and we've talked about this time, like we really don't want to recap the show. We want to talk about it. So um, what we're going to do is instead of talking about the the episode, what happens throughout it from, you know, you know, minute one to, to minute 48. It opens with a bird. Right, exactly. Yeah, we're not going to yeah, do yeah. that. There's a buzzsaw. No. Um, instead, what we're doing is we're going to try to break it up into the storylines. We talked about this last episode. How there are so many storylines uh, gathering characters together. So, so there might be a bunch of scenes that happen throughout the episode, but we're going to lump them together in a logical kind of grouping by main storylines. And the first one uh, takes us to the home of the horns, Benjamin Horn, um, and it's the opening of the episode, 
And even though I just said we're not going to talk about it chronologically, I think it's important to note that the opening scene is Ben, Audrey, the, Ben's son Johnny in, with his Indian headdress, and Ben's wife, who we never see again after this, show, after this episode, <laughs> um, all having dinner. And I think that for me, the moment that, that I realized upon rewatching it that this episode was different than the last episode was the fact that it opens on 60 seconds of silence as they eat dinner. Yeah. Like, and, it, and and sets the tone for the horns, right? Yes, yeah. You're saying, like, this is a dysfunctional family. This is what a dysfunctional family feels like. And it's, I wouldn't say it's eraser head in, yeah. in its impact, but it, it definitely it definitely reminded me right away, like, oh, yeah, this is the kind of thing that a David Lynch television show would do. You know, yeah. just make me really uncomfortable so that I understand how bad this family is and then bust it wide open by bringing in the larger than life brother Jerry Horn uh, who who by the way like bravo for Jerry Horn like like the, the, the scene with the, the, the with the baguettes and the, talk about making an entrance you know like and and what i find fascinating is the um the balance between Benjamin Horn in his suit very kind of deliberate, very strategic, very, you know, conniving. Older brother. Older brother. And then Jerry with his bow tie and his weird haircut and his like flamboyance and loudness and like and the counterbalance between the silence of the dinner and Jerry's bombastic entrance. It was just like, oh, man, this is I, I, I want to see every scene with this guy in it. Do you remember how hilarious it was when you realized suddenly that the brothers were Ben and Jerry? Too? I vaguely remember that, and I and I and I kind of cringed now watching it again because I was like, was "Well, ben that's the funny thing is Ben and Jerry's ice cream was kind of a niche ice cream still, right? Back right. then, it had not gone mainstream, right? So you had to be in the know in two ways: you had to notice it, and you had to know the ice cream. Now, nowadays, Ben and Jerry's is a cliche. For ice cream, and so it feels really dumb. Yeah, in retrospect, exactly. Um, and and about Jerry Horn, uh, played by David Patrick Kelly, um, who it was after watching Twin Peaks. Then in my teen years, I, I watched The Warriors, and I realized that the Warriors come out and play guy is Jerry. Yeah, uh, and that, and that just made made him that much cooler. So yeah. also, like I remember that that whole baguette. I was uh, just came in from Paris feeling super like cosmopolitan and sophisticated yep. to me when I watched this in 90. Yeah. Uh, and then, and today it just felt douchey like, Oh yeah, I probably would not like this character when he first walked up on screen. Well, I just, today. Had to, I just wanted to think about the, a flight from Paris to, to, he probably landed at Seattle at SeaTac. Right. And so he so the, that oh, right. It, yeah, that, that's at least an 11 hour flight. Right? Well, the Concorde was still running back then. Oh, good point. So good point. so okay. potentially he could cut he could cut down the Atlantic crossing, but he's still got to take five he's, or six hours to get to Seattle. Right. And then and then he's got to drive from yeah, SeaTac yeah. to to wherever Twin Peaks is, which is and close to Canada. And so I'm really questioning the the the, uh, the consistency of that brie. Yeah, uh, uh, maybe maybe it was a private jet. Maybe yeah. he's got a good refrigerator on it. I don't know, but yeah, it's an eleven-hour old sandwich. Yeah, that's what you're saying. <laughs> but um, so so Jerry arrives. They eat baguettes, and then Jerry and Ben uh, Ben catches Jerry up that they've lost the Norwegians and that Laura's passed away. And so then they just to to fight their depression, they decide to take a trip. Uh, and we first get our first uh, sight of One Eye Jacks. Yeah, we get our first reference to One-Eyed Jacks. We get our first, and then we go right on in. Uh, we see it. We we meet uh, Blackie, 
and and the ladies and there's a new lady and a really really horrible scene where a lady uh, a young woman who obviously is unsure of herself and doesn't want to be there uh is ogled by ben and jerry who have to flip a coin for her it's just horrible like I remember feeling this was a bad scene then. It feels even worse as time goes on. Oh, man, you're making me feel really bad about my observation from the scene, which is that, Which was, like, which, sexy. No, no, <laughs> no, not, not that, but is that all the... Um, all the women, all the uh, all the you know, all the ladies of the night uh, come out in, in kind of a display for Jerry and Ben, or Ben and Jerry, and uh, they're wearing lingerie. But if you look closely, all of the lingerie is decorated in a variety of playing card motif. To oh, the point, right. To the point where they look like Batman nineteen sixty six villains. Yeah, it's like, listen, we're going to play up this casino angle big time. <laughs> no, the uh, the outfits are over the top. Yeah, You're absolutely yeah. right. And I think it's to your credit that you were paying attention to fashion during this. Sure. Time. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't thinking about the social ramifications of. of <laughs> no, you were you were dwelling on bodies. You weren't you weren't going down that road. Uh, no, I did. You're right. It is, I think, intentionally, you know, a cheesy establishment yeah. that that overplays its hand, if yep. you will. Well, luckily, that's all we see of it uh, as we, we get exposed to what One-Eyed Jax is. And it comes back later in the episode, actually, with, um, with, with Cooper. We'll talk about it in a little bit. Um, so moving very quickly uh, to James and Donna. Uh, we pick up from last episode where James and Donna, uh, it's, we're wrapping up the end of the awkward dinner, family dinner with the Haywards. Well, that, that's the other thing. Like, I'm not sure. How, I, I'm not going to look too closely because I don't want to ruin it. But does the timeline really play out for them to st- – Still be at the house finishing dinner when all this other stuff has happened? Really long dinner. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but they've moved to the living room. They had dessert, you know, and... and Why'd you get that awkward goodnight? Yeah, oh, when the parent... And then and uh, Dr. Hayward asking Donna if she's, if she's coming coming with them to church tomorrow morning. Like, yeah, that's yeah. The, the very unsubtle reminder that not to have sex. Uh, yeah. But, but um, what, I, what really struck me about this scene, and it's really brief, but we get a very... In, before they start making out, we get a very intimate conversation between James and Donna where they pretty much rationalize what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, Laura's dead. Yeah. She can't, I mean, like, you know. It's not even that Laura's dead and there's nothing she can do. It's the fact that they both wanted it, but they couldn't say anything because Laura was in the picture. Right? <laughs> but now she's dead. And um, and I think, I don't think it works very well, and I've never picked up on it, but I think it might have been meant to give you a another red herring, Right. Uh, and I guess it's a spoiler to anybody who's watching for the first time uh, that that these are the two people who did it. And and I think it's fair because I think it's pretty obvious that these two did not collaborate on Laura's death. But I, I think they're trying to maybe sow more seeds of suspicion because that's what the show does is sow seeds of suspicion everywhere. Like well, yeah, you're supposed exactly. to suspect every single person. Yeah. And, and I remember, especially after this episode, getting into so many arguments with people over – uh, over who, your speculation of who killed Laura Palmer. And this episode does not help in alleviating any of it because it, and and again, we'll talk about it in, in a couple minutes, but it sends you in one direction, but then drops a little seeds in another direction. And yeah, you're like, yeah. ooh, wait a minute. But, um, so Although yeah, but- I, did, I did continue to suspect James throughout this period. I did not suspect him and Donna. Yeah. I didn't suspect him because of Donna even. I always felt like, the way they played out James and Donna was a thing they discovered after the fact. Yeah. Not a thing that they had been planning on before. Yeah. Um, so moving on from James and Donna, of course, Donna technically is still dating Mike. 
(laughs) on paper yeah i guess they haven't we haven't seen them break up so and uh so mike and bobby uh who are also dating yeah exactly practically um they're driving their the muscle car in the woods and then uh they go for a clandestine meeting with leo and i've got a couple of things about this scene um again david lynch directing uh mike and bobby walking through the woods with a flashlight Oh, yeah. From a POV shot, was there more of a Lynchian kind of scene of the way he uses light? And like, but it's like light that, you know, they're holding the flashlight. They need it. But he's using that light in the cinematic way to create suspense. And, you know, just, oh, just like, it's so amazing to see a filmmaker direct TV. Yeah. And which back then, I mean, now we see this all the time with HBO and sometimes Netflix and Amazon. uh, And it was almost unheard of back then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and so my only other thing, they meet Leo and, uh, Leo, that's the drug deal that's going bad because the $10,000 they owe Leo is in Laura's safe deposit box. I did a little math, Tom. Yeah. Uh, so $10,000 in 1990 is the equivalent of $18,471 in 2016 money. It actually doesn't seem like that much of a difference, right, honestly, yeah. when you put it that way. Like 10000 it might as well be 20000 Like right. I can't get it either way. I just got to think like high school kids getting in there, uh, in over their head for ten grand yeah. worth of drugs. It's just, oh, not good. Um, well, and the whole football thing, too, always struck me as odd because Bobby is supposed to be the captain of the football team. They dress Mike up yeah. where it's very obviously like the letter jacket. But Bobby never feels like an athlete because well, he's such a greaser. But Bobby's got the Twin Peaks Letterman letter uh, stitched on his leather jacket. Uh, on yeah, the I know. Jacket, so. And that's, you yeah. know, punk rock and all. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. But also in the scene, Bobby is wearing the bitchin' backwards hat. Right. <laughs> Which is just like, come on. <laughs> I mean, honestly, at, uh, at at April, what is it again? April, April 19th, uh, 19th, 1990. April 19th, 1990. That's, that's fashion forward. Yeah. Um, but the other thing about the scene, which I forgot about, which I really want to note to see if they revisit in the future. But um, so when when Leo sneaks up on Mike and Bobby with his little flashlight um, and then you f- they, they hear something and it cuts to another man with right. a ski mask on. Did we ever find out who that person is? I don't remember. And don't if we did, so. it was certainly didn't leave an impression. Yeah. Yeah. So I totally forgot about that. But that's just uh, that's Leo's backup. My guess is that was something that, that Lynch wanted to throw in. To ca- to possibly cash out later, and then gave up on that storyline. Yeah, and then yeah. we never needed it. Yeah, which we find out is littered throughout this entire first season of the show. Um, yeah, of, of things like that. But um, uh, so Ed, Ed, and uh, Big Ed Hurley and Nadine and the Silent Drape Runners. Yeah, we get Nadine's first uh, indication of super strength. Um, and and what's funny is Nadine just. In the, the and Nadine's probably one of the better paced characters in this season. She starts out as just kind of a nagging voice in the background. Then she becomes, you know, a very typical nagging housewife. And that's why he's, you know, she's driving him Ed into Norma's arms. Uh, but she's got this weird drape runner thing. And we're like, okay, well, it's a housewife going crazy, getting obsessed. But then this episode, it's like, well, let's take it up a further notch and we'll just give her inexplicable strength for no reason. I get the sense that you like Nadine. I like Nadine's story progression. I hate the character. I don't like I don't like her being around, but I admire the way it just ratchets. So you're like, well, that was interesting. Like, why is she suddenly super strong? 
I can't stand the actress. I can't stand the storyline. I can't stand like I remember watching it going, oh God, just get off the Nadine. I'll tell scene. you what though, my fascination with Nadine's storyline uh, expires very soon. Oh yeah, I, know. I can imagine. Because um, at a certain point they stop developing the character, and then yeah. it just becomes annoying. Yeah, uh, I, I, I have I have memories of a cheerleader costume. Ugh. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> But uh, what I the, the, what I thought was funny was that so the the silent drape runners breakthrough happens when Big Ed tracks in some motor oil and it gets on the on the drape runners and that makes them silent. Uh, Big Ed doesn't have a sink in the in the gas barn. <laughs> what? Oh, he's got to wash his feet every time he works on something. Know, Come on. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then the only other thing was that later in the episode, Ed goes to the diner to see Norma um, in possibly one of the best entrances ever when he walks in and just raises his hand. Like, <laughs> but um, I'm free. Yeah, but what I thought was weird was that and I guess this is a soap opera and, and makes sense. But if so, if Ed and Norma are having an affair, would they actively just talk about Nadine as if, you know, he's like, well, I'm in the doghouse again. You know, like it, it just seemed looking back on it you as mean, a, do you mean because other people might hear them or just uncomfortably talking about the other woman yeah I would just I mean just like looking back on it now as a as an adult right, as, as opposed to a as opposed to a teenager like I just feel like in a true sense of like would Norma not want to hear about Nadine would Ed not want to no, talk I, you know like honestly I think that's the thing that brought them back together that's yeah. that's the impression I get is that he just started confiding in Norma yeah. about his problems with Nadine and that's what united them so they just keep talking about it yeah. because that that he wants to escape her. And so it's his way, his catharsis is to talk about her to Norma. And Norma's together. like, great, you know, keep complaining about her because that just drives you farther into my arms. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, possibly. That makes sense. I guess so. So, uh, all right. So moving along, uh, we, we go back to the Martell's house and uh, we see a very icy scene between uh, Pete and Catherine Martell. And it's all a ruse so that Pete can sneak the key to the safe to Josie. Also, um, like one of the worst ruses in the world yeah. oh. of like, we're not supposed to know that they have separate bedrooms until she kicks him out. And we find out that he did it to get the key. And yeah. it's just so convoluted to me still. So convoluted. But what I like about this is that when Josie goes to get the ledger, it's in a safe behind a secret bookcase. Yeah. And you know what? Until you pointed this out to me, I didn't even note it. I, I watched the show, rewatched it again. I was like, oh, yeah, and there's their secret bookcase. Like, it's one of the least unusual things about this episode. So it just faded into the background for me. And for me, I was like, they have a secret bookcase. That's so cool. Like, Yeah, yeah. Like, Which is what, you, what a normal person would react. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then uh, Josie opens the safe and discovers that there are two ledgers, and that just made me laugh because talk about 1990, like yeah, you know, so actual we, I, ledgers. We don't not, use we not don't use spreadsheets. Files. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. All right, uh, but let's get to the meat of the episode. Uh, we go back to the Palmer house, uh, and we see Leland Palmer grieving over the loss of his daughter. Oh, uh, yeah, grieving is one word for it that uh, I think undersells it, uh, but I don't know what other word you would use. Uh, the well, big band music may be one of the most disturbing scenes in television. Well, it's funny because, you know, in the in the pilot and in the first episode, Leland is the face of composure. Right? In that first episode, right. right. And it's and it's another one of those throwing you off the scent things because he's so composed you start to suspect him. Right. But then he gets so upset 
that you stop suspecting him, but then start suspecting him because he's too upset. Right. Yeah. It was very weird. And of course we get uh, Mrs. Palmer screaming again, which I could really do with that. Oh, I but, know. It's actually one of the things that has turned friends of mine off of the show. They're like, I can't deal with the screaming. That woman. Uh, but, um, but interesting in the scene, he, uh, he break, he's dancing with the, 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 the homecoming queen or prom queen photo of Laura. Uh, right. he's dancing which with is, her. Psychotically is, disturbing. Oh, yeah. Um, to Transylvania 65,000, uh, or no, Pennsylvania 65,000. Pennsylvania. <laughs> Although Transylvania is uh, applicable when he breaks the glass. I yeah. Guess. Well, and that's also, that was, there was a movie that was, wasn't that a Jeff Goldblum yeah, movie yeah. in the 80s? Yeah. But anyway, um, but then he, you know, he gets upset and, and breaks the glass and punches it and then starts smearing the blood on the picture. That was all improvised uh, by the actor, by Ray Wise. That was that's, not, that was genius. not, not in the script. He just went with it, and Lynch loved it, of course. And they're like, I, like the dancing is creepy, the screaming is creepy, but the crying and rubbing the blood on her face. Oh yeah, really no. creepy, especially knowing what I know now. You know about now. If that's you know. improvised, is that actually his blood then? That, yes, his blood. Yeah, he punched the glass and broke his broke his hand. Uh, broke you know broke his skin. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think OSHA is okay with that. I don't think so either. Hold on, one more thing before we get off Leland's dance moves. Did you notice the needle? Uh, when she hits the hits the record, the needle bounces off and the music yes. stops, but then it bounces back onto the record <laughs> and the music doesn't come back. Which is unfortunate because the last episode and this episode had a couple of diegetic things like in the diner when Audrey was in the diner and, and yeah, turned on yeah. the jukebox and, and started Audrey's theme that she was dancing to. So you would think that they would have the needle scratch sound happen, but I could see why they wouldn't do that. <laughs> so. Yeah, but, but and it, sh- it would, should have started playing the music again, which I think would have actually undermined the scene. <laughs> yeah, too. I think so. Yeah, so probably a good decision there to, to kind of get in the way of things. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Laura's death leads into uh, the, the, the meat of the episode, which is the the investigation, and we go back to Agent Dale Cooper and uh, Sheriff Truman. A uh, lot to de- uh, lot to uh, unpack here, Tom. Uh, oh, a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, let's. Should we start with Albert? The arrival of Albert. I think. And we our should. first rude East Coaster. Yes. <laughs> uh, because because Cooper is the outsider, right? And yep. one of the things that's cool about Cooper is that. They they play counter to the stereotype by having him embrace the culture, yep. and he will set some rules here and there and and assert his dominance as an FBI agent and his skill. But it's all done friendly, and he he ingratiates himself uh, to the local culture. Whereas Albert comes in and just immediately starts insulting people. Yeah, and and uh, play Albert played by the great Miguel Farrer. Um, who is now known as the voiceover for Blizzard commercials? Wait, oh wow, no, I didn't know that. Known yeah. for a lot of other things. Um, yeah, no, he's and I believe he's related to George Clooney in some way. Um, is that right? I huh. think he is. Yeah, um, I think I read that somewhere. I'm gonna check that. Um, but uh, he has made such a great career of playing the asshole that yeah. it becomes so. Oh yeah, they're cousins. Him and George Clooney are cousins. Um, it, it, this comes so naturally. And for me, this is really like my first exposure to him in a big role yeah. like this Same here. And, and seeing him bef- in stuff he did before this and after us, he'll always be Albert and he will always be rude and just wonderful. But Sheriff Truman does a good job of dealing with him. Yeah, I thought. he does. Uh, I, I think Truman, uh, plays it, plays it cool. And then I love the line. When he turns to Cooper afterwards and says, is he as good as, good as you say he is or something like that? And he yeah. says, yes. And Truman says, good, because if, or if he wasn't, he'd be looking for his teeth two blocks up on Queer Street, <laughs> which is both 
an awesome line and also like disturbing horribly wrong and yeah. would never make a script today yeah <laughs> i'm like i'm like with this line he'd be looking for his teeth two blocks up yeah. period and the line there i'm this is the best line in the world uh adding on queer street and i'm like okay so we're gonna go with a 30s interpretation of just odd street i hope i th- well this is this, this is the sleepy out of time town right yeah, yeah right. So. okay they mean happy when they say gay yeah I, I, okay fine so um yeah so albert and his team of forensic guys are gonna go look at laura's body before they bury her um and so then cooper uh leads uh, sheriff true uh, in the entire sheriff's Police force, which is like there's nothing else going on in this town. Um, on a on a little bit of a exercise outside, um, and it totally, by the way, has the feeling of when your science teacher in fifth grade took the class outside in the fall. Yes, it, absolutely. And so out, so outside we we see they've got a chalkboard set up. Uh, Lucy has set up the donut spread. Um, uh, they pour coffee, of which we get a second mention of damn, uh, damn, uh, damn good coffee, right? Uh, not only that, but damn good coffee and hot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, he has uh, Truman and Andy set a bottle, a milk bottle, up on a stump. Uh, did you catch? Ha- did you catch the measurement that happened there? No, oh. I missed the measurement. What's oh, that okay. about? Okay, so so when they're setting up, um, they're pulling a measuring tape to get the distance from Cooper, and they set it up, and Cooper says. Is that, you know, is that the right distance? And Truman goes, yep, 60 feet, six inches. Oh, shoot. I did. I must have been writing down damn good coffee and <laughs> yeah. hot still at that point. And I was like, so the distance between Cooper and the milk bottle yeah. is the distance from the pitcher's mound to home plate. <laughs> no, that's the right. That's the right distance. That's what you want. 60 um, feet, six inches. That's amazing. Yeah. But so uh, and this leads to Cooper giving basically a history lesson on Tibet. Uh, which for me at my at you know twelve or thirteen when I'm watching this I'd never even heard of the Dalai Lama or Tibet so this was right. my first introduction to any Same. sort of any sort of Eastern philosophy or anything. Um, no, the the idea of the Dalai Lama and China like China invading Tibet all of that this was my awakening to that entire issue. Yeah, me too, absolutely, and and like honestly, it was I got to wonder how many other people were introduced to the Dalai Lama from Twin Peaks, right? Because you remember the, 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 the 90s then became, the Dalai Lama was everywhere in the mid-90s, Oh, yeah, right? Free yeah. Tibet and all of that. I'm sure it had a lot to do with that. I also noticed for the first time that there's no connection between him describing Tibet and the plight of the Dalai Lama and his deductive technique. Yeah, it he, doesn't come he, from Tibet. He doesn't talk about a book from Tibet that he read. He just jumps from saying, here's Tibet. And then one day in a dream, I had this deductive technique. They're totally unrelated. They're unconnected. <laughs> and it's weird because you, you assume that there would be some connection that the dream told me to do this, whatever. All he says is that the dream, uh, you know, led me to a deductive technique that we're going to do now. Like it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. say give any specifics or anything like that. No, exactly. Your, 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 your mind at the time, I think, fills in like, oh, well, it's some crazy Eastern philosophy. And here, it, here comes the practice of it. But yeah. no, they're really isn't like if you go as i did go on to learn even the smallest amount of eastern philosophy afterwards you're like no that's not what no that he just has a weird deductive technique which involves throwing rocks and bottles well now now what's really interesting is that some of the folks yeah so so uh, the 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 technique is they have a list of all so in laura's diary she says nervous about meeting jay so they've written all the names of of suspects who have a jay in their name and cooper's going to throw a rock at the milk bottle 
And it's and they never explain this, but it's presumed that if he hits the bottle, that means that person is somebody who they need to you know is is a suspect, right? person of interest. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and we see and we see this work out when when they say they mention Johnny, the you know Audrey's brother who has special needs. He throws the rock and it goes wildly wide. Right. Clearly, he didn't do it. Um, some of the analysis of this episode and this whole. Uh, process uh, is it's this is basically a uh, a heuristic uh, which is a which is the the ancient Greek kind of approach to problem solving which is to do to solve X do Y so a lot of times you hear that like people say okay if you're having you know if you're having a hard time understanding a logic problem draw a picture you know yeah which is Greek not Tibetan right exactly Um, I mean, maybe maybe there's something in Tibetan philosophy that that is similar to this. We're just that's not explained to us. The other thing that this deductive technique serves, which is very utilitarian, very network broadcast TV, very unlynchian, is catching up people who have missed the first two shows and didn't record them on their VCR. It's a perfect rundown of here are all the people in the show and their relationship to the dead Laura Palmer. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and and I noted that as well too, which is if you and think about in the world of 1990, where unless you tape something, there was no ABC app to go watch the episode after it aired. Oh, yeah, there was no right. BitTorrent. There's no. There's no. There unless you tape that show, you missed it. Kids, and, ask your parents what it was like not to have BitTorrent. Exactly, and in this particular case, you had the the pilot movie you know, do really well, but sure enough, people missed it. And then this first episode doesn't really explain what's going on. So you probably had a lot of people tuning in for the first time. This worked perfectly to catch them up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and then of course, uh, we only have one hit to the bottle. No, one we have two break. hits. Two well, hits. I guess we have, you're right. We have one hit and one break. Yeah. So Dr. Dr. Jacoby hits the bottle, but it does not break. Um, and then uh, also on the on the chalkboard, which they eliminate, uh, Cooper did receive a secret note uh, in the in his hotel before they went to go do this uh, handwritten note that said a jack with one eye. So that made it up to the board, and that made me laugh because uh, he I guess he wrote that without telling anyone about the note. And like if anyone who knows about one eye jack, like talk about the most unsubtle hint that anybody could give. Well, just write one eye jacks. Instead of a jack with one eye, like it just was jack <laughs> with one eye. I'm not gonna write one eye jacks because that's too obvious. Yeah. I, I, also, it doesn't begin with J. Yeah. <laughs> but um. But so they eliminate that because it's a place, which is a very fun. Which also I like that because Lucy's doing her whole talking too much thing in that scene. Yeah. And I love how Cooper, like, doesn't get never gets frustrated at Lucy. Mm-hmm. He just stops. He goes erase it. You know, like he 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 handles all of Truman's staff with such respect. And yeah. in individual respect based off the different characters as they need it, which I think is great. But anyway, um, but then finally the last name uh, gets the break, and that is Leo Johnson, which I thought was odd because up to this point, has Leo Johnson been on their radar at all? Uh, no, he hasn't been on their radar. Uh, he's He's been mentioned a couple of times, but mostly in connection uh, to Bobby because, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 nothing like, oh, Bobby was seen out by Leo Johnson's or, oh, that's who's that? That's um, and now I'm blanket on the waitress. Uh, uh, Shelly. 
Shelly's Shelly. Boyfriend. That's yep. Shelly. She's yep. you know, married to Leo Johnson, but he's not a, a, a suspect. Right. So that's a big revelation for them. On the other hand, we've all seen Leo with a bloody shirt. We've seen sure. him uh, with soap in a sock. We saw the, and we we're, saw the, and ad, we the immediately. The yeah, ad in yeah. Flesh World with his truck in it, right? And so we immediately jumped to the conclusion like, oh, well, yeah, he totally could have killed Laura Palmer. Yeah. I just I just thought it was I just thought it was really weird that they had him on the list at all, because at that point and, and it makes sense because the, they're leading us towards thinking he did it. But yeah. from an investigation standpoint, I and I, I, I need to go back and rewatch the pilot and rewatch the, the last episode. But I don't think Cooper like I don't know other than him having a J name. It's just a stretch. That's all. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably over analyzing it. But that threw a flag for me. So yeah, they'd have to be casting a really wide net. But his name has come up inside conversation yeah, yeah. so yeah so yeah so very dramatically the, the glass breaks. also did shelly johnson's name was she, I can't she was remember on now. it she was on it she yeah, was and, and okay happened so there you go they had to have shelly so then why not have leo right i also liked when norma jennings when he threw the rock on norma that's the rock that ricocheted and hit andy in the head <laughs> poor deputy andy poor uh yeah you gotta have your barney fife yep exactly so uh yeah so that leads to the last scene in the episode um which we we see dale cooper in his pajamas uh he gets a phone call uh in, in the hotel from deputy hawk right or did that happen earlier in the show I think uh, that happened earlier. I think that happened earlier in the show. Yeah, yeah. but still, he got a he got a call from Hawk about that. Hawk, Hawk reports that he saw the one armed man. Um, but then Cooper goes to sleep. He's in his, he's in his jammies. And uh, well, oh, hold on. When, did you notice when they have the conversation? At one point, Cooper goes one armed man, and Hawk says left. Oh God. <laughs> Which makes sense. That's I mean, he's yeah. observing, right? It's like it's almost like he thought Cooper said, "What arm, man?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I didn't catch that. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So Cooper goes to sleep, and then we he falls into a dream state. And this was this is the point where the show makes a left turn, and people either went running for the hills or loved it. Yeah, because this is the first of a few dream sequences that will define the show, and it is not tentative. That's that's the thing that struck me watching it again. Is this isn't like oh well they'll they'll make these dream sequences even weirder later later on. No, it is as weird as it's going to get right from the start. Yeah, um, so so weird. Uh, we get introduced to the red room. This is the first instance of the red room, the the curtain, the curtained room with the zigzag floor, um, yep. as well as poor makeup, old Agent Cooper. Which, um, by the way, now that we've actually seen uh, Kyle McLaughlin in his Agent Cooper outfit and makeup for the current twenty fifth year uh, version of the show, he looks older. In this third episode than yes. he does in real life when he's actually 25 years older. I know, which is fascinating. <laughs> um, but even before we get to the Red Room, we see a lot of imagery um, of the one-armed man uh, giving some sort of speech or some sort of, you know, background. Uh, How do you call it? Convenience yeah, store? Con yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we find out that his name is Mike and that he lived above a convenience store with with Bob. And then it cuts and we see Bob. And it's, the same. And it's our first name check for Bob. It too. is our first name check for Bob. And we see the guy we see the played by Frank Silva, uh, the guy with the long hair from the from who was crouching down in Mrs. Palmer's vision. Um, this whole sequence was shot for the foreign movie version of the pilot. 
And this was meant to be the this is the this is the bits that explain the ending of that movie for the foreign film. Lynch had never Lynch and Frost had never planned to include it in the American TV show, but they, Lynch was so satisfied with the way this came out, he said, "Well, let's work it into the show." Which I just yeah, and I'm glad he did because it's <laughs> iconic uh, po- poetry. Is yeah. it poetry? I guess it's poetry. Sure, uh, but it definitely sticks into my into my head these yeah. are these are lines that that rattle around when i think about twin peaks uh not and speaking of lines that rattle around uh backwards talking man yes uh shows up for the first time and like all the lines all the lines you remember him saying he basically says in this scene yep although doesn't uh, he didn't say it in this uh, uh, the, when he claps his hand and goes let's rock or let's whatever yeah. that's, that's from a later let's. episode right no, he did that here. He did Let's that here. Okay. Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he did. Right, and okay. that chewing gum you like <laughs> is going to come back in style. Man, that, I, this this scene freaked me out as a kid. I remember I was just like I I was like I lost my mind. I was like, what is this? So they they filmed this whole thing by having um, the the little man and Cheryl Lee, who played Laura Palmer, uh, record the scene. Back, saying their lines backwards phonetically. Yeah, they had to phonetically pronounce them in reverse. Right. And then they played the scene back in reverse and it gave it a weird kind of reverby kind of thing. It, it, apparently, this is something Lynch was experimenting with going back to Eraserhead. Oh, wow. Yeah. Didn't realize it went back that far. Yeah. And finally, yeah, Michael, worked, Michael worked, J. Anderson is the name of Backwards Talking Man. Yeah. And, and worked it into, finally worked it into Twin Peaks uh, in the scene. And it's just so creepy. And, and like, not only is the, is the dialogue creepy because you can, they give you closed captions, but you can really understand it. The closed captions help. Oh, yeah. You can. But, but for me, it's the, the fact that the actor's movements are being played backwards. So facial expressions are happening in reverse and like, it just, oh, and like it, it, it's completely unsettling. Completely. You get an uncanny Valley out yeah. of it because smiles just look wrong yeah. and you can't quite put your finger on why, especially if you don't know it's being shot backwards. Yep. Um, and so the, so the, uh, the, the little man, what is What is the character's name? Man it's, from another place. The man from another place. Uh, he introduces Cooper to his cousin who looks a lot like Laura Palmer, uh, which I, which is foreshadowing for later in the show. Um, yeah. Well, and you get her line. Uh, sometimes I think I am her, but then my arms bend back. Oh, which is so creepy. Oh, and, yeah. and earlier in Mike's, uh, the one, our man's poetry soliloquy, we finally get the, we get the first instance of fire walk with me. Ah, uh, right. So like one chance out between two worlds, so much creepy imagery and wordplay and all this sort of stuff. Um, uh, and then, uh, and then the man from another place starts his jazzy dance and, uh, Cooper wakes up and immediately picks up the phone and calls Harry Truman and says, I know who killed Laura Palmer and that it can wait till morning. That's the best part. I know who killed Laura Palmer. Most shows would just cut. Yeah. Right. And and then and then uh, next week maybe you'd have the uh, no. I can wait till morning. No, this one is like I know who killed Laura. No, it can wait till morning. I'm just gonna go back to sleep. Like really, really. So it this that cliffhanger. I love that because because like, as I'm watching it again now, I was like, why doesn't he just tell him? And then he says it can wait till morning. I was like, oh, okay, it can wait till morning. Um, yeah, it can wait till next week. I, I remember Tune going in. into school the next day, and me and the other people who were watching the show were like arguing over who like who could it be based off that. And one of the prevailing theories at this point was because the one armed man was named Mike and Bob is Bob that it's actually Mike and Bobby. 
Ah, and those are just representations of them or in his older dream. older versions or something. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. That, and, that, and, and so I remember being involved in conversations, laying out the clues, pointing out that it's Mike and Bobby. Um, <laughs> so talk about the misdirection. Like, no, no, they want us to think it's Leo, but it's actually Mike and Bobby. And all, you know, you yes. know what? Yeah. If Dana Ashbrook grew his hair out now because yeah. he's so gray, yeah. he totally could be Bob. Yeah, and Frank, Frank Silva passed away, so I don't know how they're going to handle that because he's not – around anymore so you know um yeah yeah it'll be rough but uh but all in all this this episode is just one of the i mean this this is the la- this is the this is the one where it's like okay this this just got weird yeah um, and i i think you're absolutely right this is the you're either in or you're out yeah episode and the, there'll be other episodes in season two particularly where people who are in right now might finally like well now i'm out but for the for the main line uh, of like whether you're going to enjoy any part of this show. This is the defining episode. Yeah. Yep. So, all right. So that, that's a lot of storylines and a lot of meat. Whereas like, I feel like it, last episode didn't have a lot of meat. It just had a lot of atmosphere. This is, this is really meaty. Um, but uh, yeah. So let's talk to Diane. What do we note? Diane, yes. note this. Uh, we get our first look at Invitation to Love. Yep. This is the sub show that we will actually we'll actually get more brilliant <laughs> later on. Uh, at this point, there's only the barest hint of what it will end up being. It's just the, t- uh, just the title card. Because it's right? just the title card and, and the opening music. And, and so it's like, oh, I guess they didn't want to show a real soap opera. That was not unusual back then. So that, that that's just a soap opera. But, you know, those of us who watch the show know, like, that's only going to get more and more genius yes. over time. So, yeah, that, that was on when Shelly was uh, home and she tur- and the show was just starting and she turns it off and makes a, 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 you know, a snarky quip about, you know, love or whatnot because she's mm-hmm. nurs- nursing her wounds from the from the soap in the sock. So correct. Correct. Um, so yeah, so I, I caught invitation to love as well. Um, I also caught that right before Albert was introduced, um, Cooper and Truman are sitting down, they're going over evidence and Truman showed him it. There's a bloody rag that they found at the scene and Cooper explains that Albert's coming and his team is the best in the business and the, the queer street line. Um, and that, that actually, that, that, that scene ends with Cooper, you know, telling Truman it's, you know, it'll be all right. And he's, you know, we get more sense of the, the Cooper-Truman friendship. And Cooper puts his hand on Harry's arm. Harry looks at the hand on the arm. And then Cooper lifts his hand from his arm and tweaks Truman's nose. <laughs> that totally feels like a, an improv thing. Yes. We're like, <laughs> that was not meant, that was not blocked. Right. Kyle McLaughlin just decided to do that right then. And it's helping the bromance between Cooper and Truman so much to leave that stuff in the show. Totally. Right. Yeah. Because you see Truman react naturally to it. He kind of, he kind of laughs and. You know, it's it's it, I, that for me, that was like, oh, that was my favorite moment. So <laughs> also when uh, when Coop discovers the note slid under his door, the Jack with one eye yep. uh, note, I for the first time ever noticed a hint of Audrey's music Ooh. plays okay. just just like one measure of it. Uh, which is, you know, kind of a giveaway, actually. Yeah. Well, yeah, and 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 that 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 just go continues on the the you know I I love I, as in movies and in TV I love the use of light motifs you know whether it's in in Star Wars or here in Twin Peaks the idea of characters having certain themes and we get variations depending on the themes and all stuff and that's something that Lynch brought over from cinema to TV for this because TV doesn't use it that often because it's hard yeah. to keep a score going but like if you get the soundtrack to Twin Peaks it's it's Audrey's theme it's Laura's theme it's it's all these things and using those to suggest 
Like, so, you know, we see that note and, oh, wonder who it is. But that music cue tells you, oh, it was Audrey. So Audrey's screwing well, the Well, and it's, you know? it's the whiff of perfume off yes. that note, right? Yeah. Except you can't smell it on TV. So that, so that light motif yeah. uh, plays that part. Yeah. I love light motifs better than heavy motifs. <laughs> I just remember in college, I, I took a, a music in the uh, music and media class and uh, I had to write my final paper uh, and on something, and I wrote it on light motifs, specifically the use of light. Oh, motifs, nice. The, specifically the use of light motifs in Star Wars, because whatever it was, nineteen ninety five, uh, and I could do yeah, that. Yeah, right. And right. um, and I remember. And it's a good example of them. And I remember sitting down to write the paper. I'm like, well, I need to watch the movie, and so I, in my dorm room, you know, I start watching the movie. My roommate comes in, our next, our neighbors come in. We watch Star Wars, and I'm like, all right, I guess I'll write the paper. And then I was like, well, I probably should watch Empire. So I put Empire in, and then I'm like, well, I should probably watch Jedi. And so now right, six hours. More examples. Right. So now six hours later, it's two a.m. I've got to write this paper, but I don't remember Star Wars, so I've got to put Star Wars back. Got to go back. Nice. <laughs> so I went down That's a light motif rabbit hole, Tom. It was no good. Yeah, it's, yeah. it happens to the best of us. Yeah. All right, uh, folks, we want to hear from you for our town hall segment. We'll be having a town hall soon, uh, so send your concerns about how this community is going to feedback at damnfinepodcast.com. You can also comment on this episode itself at damnfinepodcast.com. Yes, we'd love to hear from you. We want to hear your theories at this point in the show. So Yeah. <laughs> it's it's uh, going to be me- interesting to talk about theories and speculation when we already know what it is, but... <laughs> But, you know, like anything, you, you you wonder the directions it could have taken and things like that. So Yeah, I mean, like Lynch, we are seeding this email address for future plot developments because obviously when the Showtime show starts, all of us are going to be in the dark again. And, and we want to make sure that you've got an outlet to, to share the craziest theories as we proceed through that. Absolutely. So. Thanks for listening to A Damn Fine Podcast. Please tune in next time for the fourth episode of this show about the fourth episode of Twin Peaks, which is, which is the third episode by number. And I, and we get to find out who killed Laura Palmer. Oh, right. Exactly. Because yeah. it, it'll be uh, tomorrow morning. It's All a cliffhanger. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, meanwhile, Ron and I are going to go to sleep and dream <laughs> of backwards talking men. I'm Tom. I'm Ron. See you later. Bye.